entering the Freedom Hut. Is there really a movement for 18 months of rolling lockdowns? We'll talk about that and how it's described as a long, hard road ahead by some. Plus, the governor of Texas is talking about reopening. What about other states? And also, was COVID-19 possibly here in December? Los Angeles Times weighs in on that one. Joe Biden's sexual assault allegation finally gets some treatment in the media. And Carol Baskin says she's been betrayed. That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I think it's going to be the toughest decision that I've ever made. You know, I really, hopefully that I ever will have to make, but it's certainly the toughest decision that I've ever made. And I hope that I'm going to make the right decision. I'll be basing it on a lot of, a lot of very smart people, a lot of professionals, doctors and uh, business leaders. There are a lot of things that go into a decision like that. And uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be based on a lot of facts and a lot of instinct also, whether we like it or not there is a certain instinct to it but we have to get our country back people want to get back they want to get back to work we have to bring our country back and uh so i'll be making a decision reasonably soon we're setting up a council now of some of the most distinguished leaders in virtually every field including uh politics and business and medical and we'll be making that decision fairly soon welcome to the buck sexton show everyone the president telling us that it will be the hardest decision that he has ever made deciding whether or not we will have a reopened economy, how soon that will happen. We know that this is an inevitable discussion. We understand that there's a time limit on how long we can go in this current lockdown But no one has yet been willing to really declare what that will be. Dr. Fauci and others are out there saying that this is a circumstance that we can't really know right now how it will end up because the virus gets a say. And to this, I say, well, what about the fact that we all understand that this cannot be the current state of lockdown will become economically catastrophic? I have not heard a single person who knows anything about anything who does not agree with that, at least in theory, does not agree with that basic statement that eventually the lockdown will become just too onerous, too problematic, and too destructive to the economy. People will stop obeying. People will non-comply, millions and millions of them. And you will have, if there are efforts by the state to force compliance, civil unrest, which is a polite way of saying violence and riots in the streets. You will have that at some point. I'm not saying it's going to be this, this week, next month, Maybe we could do this. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't like to say things even like maybe we could do this until September. Maybe because I don't know. Nobody really knows. No one knows. And so we find ourselves trying to make a case when one side of the argument just wants to, to yell and shriek about how if you even care about the economy right now, you're some kind of monster. You're a bad person. Meanwhile, there's a growing understanding, I think, within the medical community that at least some members of the medical community, that this cannot stand as is. Uh, Steps to reopen, right? The basic early stage, not return to normalcy, but 
putting us on a pathway to economic activity. Normal's not going to happen until we have a, a, a treatment or a vaccine. That's when normal comes back. Otherwise, what we have at, at a minimum, a best case scenario is this becomes w- without those two things is that we managed to suppress this to the point where we can go about our day to day lives. But it's still hovering in the background and we still always have this concern that it will come back, that there will be spikes, there'll be additional cases. Dr. Fauci has pointed out that perhaps next month we will be in a position to take some of those steps to reopen. Play six. I believe that if we have a good measured way of rolling into this steps towards normality, that we hope by the time we get to November that we'll be able to do it in a way which is the standard way. However, and I don't want to be the pessimistic person, there is always a possibility as that as we get into next fall and the beginning of early winter, that we could see a rebound. And hopefully, hopefully, what we've gone through now and the capability that we have for much, much better testing capability, much, much better surveillance capability, and the ability to respond with countermeasures, with drugs that work, that it will be an entirely different ballgame. So, number one, I hope we don't have a rebound that would make this very difficult as we get into November. But if we do, and there certainly is a possibility, I'm a realist, it certainly is a possibility, hopefully we'll be able to respond to that rebound in a much more effective way than what we've seen now in January, February, March. Now, I find that general line of analysis to be this is this is uh, reasonable, right? He's saying we'll take some steps. We could have a rebound. And, you know, I know Dr. Fauci's become very political for a lot of people, and I'll get into why in a moment, given some of the statements he's made. But I, I do think that the guy really is, uh, you know, in, in, he's in a very difficult position. He's in a very difficult position. And you have to understand his, uh, his incentives are just for maximum, maximum uh, lockdown and saving as many lives as is possible through policy, irrespective of what the economy does. The economy is not his purview. The economy is not his area. And, and just mental health and the child abuse and the spousal abuse and the divorces and the drug abuse and all the things that we're already seeing the early indicators are direct results, not, not correlated with direct results of this lockdown situation. That's not really Dr. Fauci's area either, right? So this is if you, if you go to somebody, you know, if you sit down with a doctor of uh, of climatology, with someone who's a Ph.D. in climatology, for example, and you ask them, what's the most important thing in the world? They're going to tell you climate change. And if you say, what should we be willing to do to fight against climate change? They'll say anything, anything. And that's because that's their area. That's what they focus on. And anything other than that is going to open them up to accusations of uh, not taking the issue seriously enough. It's risk that they don't need to have. Right. So I'm just trying to establish for us as we talk about this, because this is going to be the conversation for the weeks ahead. When to reopen, how much to reopen, where to reopen. Let's establish that the public health epidemiolo- epidemiologists, the various experts that we look to, they have a very clear way of looking at this issue. And also they have individual and professional incentives for this. And I'm not saying that, that that's necessarily in this case, a, a bad thing. I mean, wanting to save lives is obviously an honorable thing. But wanting to save lives is going to be all that we hear from people who are also making decisions that directly affect the economy, which is also about lives 
and health and the future. The economy is not the stock market. And this is the, the stupid bad faith argument that you hear from so many people who just want to shut this down. Um, but we also need to be prepared for being told that while they understand we can't do this forever, we're basically going to keep doing this and doing this and doing this until there's a movement to stop it. And that's what I think we're heading toward. I, I don't think that there's going to be a, a, an agreement on this. I don't think that you're going to see President Trump come out in May and say, I'm going to leave this to states to reopen. And then the media is going to be is going to be accepting of what happens, because remember, if Trump leaves it to the states, that is the proper constitutional and respectful of federalism approach. But if Trump leaves it to the states, how can they blame Trump when one state opens up and let's say has a resurgence of cases? Well, that was the governor's decision that was left to the states. They don't want that to be the case. They, they want to make sure that it's going to be Trump's fault. So there won't be an acceptance of that framework from the media that some places can open and other places can't. They're going to say that there should be a national lockdown. This is what Pelosi and others have been have been pushing for. There needs to be a national level lockdown and any deviation from that from the president is wrong. Any deviation from that blood is on his hands. That's what you'll hear. That is inevitably where this whole thing is going. So also keep in mind that when we're talking about the election, Dr. Fauci is saying, you know, hopefully we'll be able to vote normally. So you can see that that's going to be quite a debate too. play clip five. You know, I think it could probably start at least in some ways, maybe next month. And again, Jake, it's so difficult to make those kinds of predictions because they always get thrown back at you if, if it doesn't happen. Not by you, but, you know, by by any even number of people. We are hoping that at the end of the month we could look around and say, OK, is there any element here that we can safely and cautiously start pulling back on? If so, do it. If not then just continue to hunker down. Continue to hunker down. How long are we going to be told to continue to hunker down? At what point does everyone start to recognize that that's just crazy? There is a point at which it's crazy, and it doesn't matter what the epidemiologists say. Maybe it's a year. Maybe it's 18 months. I don't know. Maybe it's two years. We don't necessarily have a vaccine in 18 months. That's, that's best case scenario. Two years, three years. I know you're starting to say, Buck, this is completely insane. Exactly. But we're being told, hunker down as long as it takes, as long as it takes. Nope. There is going to be a pushback on this. There's going to be a backlash on this. It will be extreme as time goes by. People will recognize that there is more, in fact, at stake here than merely the best possible practices to contain a virus that we're not even sure are the best practices. They keep telling us this, but I'd like to see more data about what re what the reality of the change in transmission is as a result of lockdown of business versus social distancing at home, better hygiene protection for those who are at, at particularly high risk. And also until we have serology tests to show us how far and wide the infection spread and how soon it was here. This is a lot of guesswork. Anyone who's telling you otherwise, I mean, uh, the lo lockdown is. The just extreme, it's the nuclear option. We have done the nuclear option against this virus, and we don't even know a lot of things about it that you would want to know before you would take that option. So remember that, too. There are scenarios in which new information comes along here that shows us that this was a 
one size fits all approach that was not the right move. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but it's certainly possible. Meanwhile, we're being told, you know, maybe you just kind of keep locking down, keep locking down. No, eventually we're going to start unlocking one way or the other. I mean, the government can either be on board for this or not, but people are going to non comply. You know, this weekend was Easter for Christians. It's uh, I know it's the Passover season for our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's uh, Easter for those of us who are Christians. And it was a pretty remarkable, unsettling and uh, difficult thing to hear that there were not just church services shut down. Of course, that's but I understand why that's happening, uh, but that the state was threatening to jail people who didn't just go to church, but did things to try and maintain social distancing while also practicing their faith. A drive in church, for example, where everyone stays in their car. That being shut down, what, you're going to infect people through the glass of the window of your car if your cars are all closed? Well, what exactly is a, you know, you, you keep seeing this. The overreach by the state is getting stronger and stronger, and the justifications for the experts telling us what to do are not getting stronger. In fact, there are more questions as time goes on, not only about how they completely, completely missed the preparation for this, missed the early warnings that we should have had, and I'm talking about the experts now, uh, but also th that along the way, we've been told to do some things that are wrong. And there's a lot here that we still have to know before we can understand how to weigh the options they're giving us right now. Lockdown forever is not possible. Reopening has to happen at some point. There will be risks to reopening. But the risks from never opening are absolute and I think we're starting to understand that better as a country. At least some of us are. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So these estimates or, or predictions of a V-shaped economy, that the economy is just going to turn right back on when people go back to work, is overly optimistic. I think so. I, have, I you know, it would be wonderful if some new therapy were developed in the next couple months that people could have confidence to go back to work, that they could get treatment. Then potentially we would have a V-shaped recovery. But borrowing some, barring some healthcare miracle like that, it seems like we're going to have various phases of rolling flare-ups, as we heard from your guest from Washington, uh, different parts of the economy, uh, turning back on, maybe turning back off again. This could be a long hard road that we have ahead of us until we get to either an effective therapy or a vaccine. It's hard for me to see a V-shaped recovery under that scenario. A long, hard road. That was Neil Kashkari, the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. A long, hard road and no V-shaped recovery. Right now, people look at the stock market and they're thinking, OK, things can't be that bad. The market has rallied up. Uh, the Dow's up a few thousand points from its low and it seems like it's stabilized for right now. We have to understand that there are a lot of people who have been betting on the infusion of cash from the government and that this wouldn't last that long. Once we start to get closer to the recognition that that cash infusion from the government, as massive as it is, trillions of dollars, is not enough. Once we get to that point, once we get to the phase where we recognize what the real damage is here and how long it's going to take to unwind. That's when I really worry about the economic implications. And I think that will be reflected very differently in the market. Remember, right now, the Treasury yields, bond yields are very, very low. So people out there who are speculators, people who want to make money, they have to put money into the stock market. 
and there's a very ingrained in investors sentiment. You know, this is like investing 101, you know, buy the dip. When everyone else is fearful, you get greedy. When everyone else is greedy, you get fearful. The, these are the mantras of the market. And right now, people are obviously fearful. So there are some folks out there who are looking to uh, capitalize on that. And by the way, that's a good thing. We want people investing their money in companies right now. We want those stocks to, to stabilize. That's important for jobs. That's, there's a lot that goes on with the stock market that's not about people trying to you know, pad their, their own bank accounts uh, excessively. Is there such a thing as excessively? We could talk about that another time. But for right now, there's this uh, complacency, I think, about this. There's a complacency that all that has to happen is we'll reach this point and they'll say business goes, business is turned back on. And it's like none of this will have ever happened. Everyone will go back to their jobs. Businesses will reopen. That's not going to happen. There is a loss of productivity, a loss of productive behavior, a loss of wealth in real terms that has occurred here. Trillions of dollars of wealth has evaporated globally and trillions, I can't tell you how many, are in the process of evaporating from the U.S. economy. That's happening right now. We, we've bought ourselves some time for this, but if we wait to see the worst effects here of the economic slowdown, it'll be far too late and we won't be able to avoid them, right? We'll be suffering from them. And that's what I think needs to be understood uh, much more so than what we're currently seeing from this conversation. In fact, there's still a very powerful movement out there among media and among elected officials and among generally left. It, it, it's it's inter interesting, isn't it? There's a partisan divide here somehow. There are conservatives I know who also believe in maximum shutdown. So I want to be clear that this is not entirely partisan. But generally, leftists want shut it down, shut it all down. Government writes the checks for as long as needed. And conservatives are saying, can we start to go back to business? Why is that ideological divide so apparent? It's a question worth asking. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The New York Times reported yesterday that, that you and other top officials wanted to recommend social and physical distancing guidelines to President Trump as far back as the third week of February. Uh, but the uh, administration didn't announce such guidelines to the American public until March 16th, almost a month later. Why? You know, Jake, as I've said many times, we look at it from a pure health standpoint. We make a recommendation. Often the recommendation is taken. Sometimes it's not. But we, it is what it is. We are where we are right now. Do you think lives could have been saved uh, if social distancing, physical distancing, stay-at-home measures had started third week of February instead of mid-March? You know, Jake, again, it's the what would have, what could have. It's very difficult to, to go back and say that. I mean, obviously, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation earlier, you could have saved lives. Obviously, no one is going to deny that. But what goes into those kinds of decisions is, is complicated. But you're right. I mean, obviously, if we had right from the very beginning shut everything down, it may have been a little bit different. But there was a lot of pushback about shutting things down back then. Notice the thread here, the, the way that this is teed up by fake Tapper himself. Uh, the, the really the in many ways, the, uh, a master of fake news and, and among the biggest frauds in the entire business, at least some of the other libs out there admit that they're huge libs and they're pushing an agenda. He, he still pretends that he's just a journalist, man. Uh, so he, he establishes 
that the, that the president did not move as soon as some of his advisors thought maybe he should move. And then it's did there just just asking a neutral question here. You know, could that have meant that lies were lost? And I'm just waiting. When, when do we just start hearing people say, well, you know, is there blood on Trump's hands? Just ask the epidemiologist this. Here's another way to, to go. And, and you see this. This is constructing a narrative because what, what's not asked in that question is would there have been would there have been outrage if Trump had wanted to institute measures before the public was quite was as aware of what the threat was from this? But we have been told that Trump was a tyrant, that Trump was a dictator. Oh, my gosh, he's seizing power. He's shutting things down. He's not going to allow there to be an election. Crazy stuff like that. Does anyone really want to pretend that that would not have been the claim made if Trump had said, shut it down, shut it all down in February? Saying it it took him a, a month to do it. Let's understand that, you know, they really needed to shut it down. And this is where we get to the well, we'll get to this conversation about how long the disease was in this country, they really needed to shut it down in January, right? They needed to shut it down right away, which nobody was doing. And in fact, the public health authorities that we rely on to keep us safe from exactly this, this is their, you know, you know that, that phrase, you know, you had one job, CDC, NIH, Fauci and company, various city health authorities, you know, Garcetti out in, in Los Angeles, who's now Mr. Snitch on your neighbor, will get, you know, for getting some sunshine and will give you a reward. Garcetti, just like de Blasio here in New York, had his had public health authorities out there telling everybody, you know, you're what you're doing is uh, what you're doing is great. Get out there. Go to the Wuhan Strong Festival in Chinatown here in New York. Go do that. Garcetti's people were saying the same thing. Go out there. It's fine. Chinese Lunar New Year. No problem. And they believe that Los Angeles's outbreak of this, which has been smaller so far, but the West Coast's outbreak of this was directly from China. So we were just getting off a plane from China. We keep getting told now that ours came from Italy. All that means is that Chinese uh, Chinese visitors to Italy infected Italians and other Europeans, and then they came here to this country, or our people visiting Italy got it there. That's all that means. But, oh, no, maybe we should call it, you know, the Milan virus or something. I've heard some stupidity like that over the weekend. Completely Completely absurd, but that's where we, that's where we are. Unfortunately, a lot of very stupid commentary around this. Uh, but yeah, you could always say that, that lives could have been saved. I would also point out that if we shut down the country for this is a fact, and people are going to say this is absurd. If we shut down the country for two months every year during flu season, no question, we would save thousands of lives from the flu. Thousands of lives. That that's just. Does anyone want to take the other side of that? If social distancing works the way we're told that it does even if just enhanced hygiene matters, right? But social distancing and, and lockdowns for the flu would save, and not, not just a, a couple thousand. I mean, they'd probably save 20, 30,000 lives. If you did it, you know, let's say January, February every year, just have the government send us a check. Send everyone a check for January, February. Whatever you're making, the government sends you that for those months. Keep it on lockdown. Don't, doesn't every life matter? Why won't we take every step to save every life? You can do the same thing that you're starting to see happen now. No, it's about what is what is reasonable risk and what is reasonable mitigation. And this this discussion is going to get very ugly because there is a lot of death. There is a lot of suffering out there, certainly here in New York, and New Jersey, but in other cities across the country, too. But there are also people who not only and, you know, put aside the left and how they want to make sure that all the Planned Parenthoods are running, you know, all the infants, uh, you know, abattoirs for infants are going during this whole process. Got to make sure that's happening. Uh, but the, there are people who do just want to protect life, and I understand that, and that's obviously a, a, a very valid argument. 
But there are also people that are pretending how much they care about protecting life because they also view this as a huge opportunity politically, the same way they pretended to care about troops getting killed in Iraq on the left when that was just a, a, a weapon to, to bludgeon the Bush administration with. Because the moment that the deaths were happening under Obama in Afghanistan, they didn't care. Anti-war left disappeared. Does someone else want to try to find an explanation for me for why that was the case? We all know. This is why, I mean, I, I hate fake I hate fake principles and moralizing from frauds and people that don't really care about their fellow human beings, but just drape themselves in so much concern about their fellow human beings. Now, I'm not saying that that's there are a lot of people that are just worried about this. And I think it's a majority of them. And I, and I get that. And they they in the most basic human way just want to protect life. And I respect that. But there is a strong contingent as well of people who it's really just about an opportunity to bash Trump and keep the government shut down. You know, I don't think they're up late at night worried about how many cases of, of COVID-19 are, are going bad on any given day. I, I, I think that there's, a, there's certainly a contingent for whom that is the case. And they're very loud. And they're very loud on Twitter. They're very loud in other places, too. But that's why that, that, that whole Tapper thing, well, could lives have been saved sooner? And Fauci's like, I mean, yeah, of course you could always say that. But, you know, then the, then the other the question that you have to follow, if you're a real journalist, you'd have to say, well, didn't you have an obligation to make that if it's about saving lives? Didn't Dr. Fauci and others have the obligation to tell everybody to make noise, not just to tell the president, but to go out there and make a statement that this is what they see. This is what they believe. And then isn't there blood on the hands of the experts who are supposed to be protecting us? If we're going to play the blood on the hands game, which I don't think we should be doing, but this is what keeps happening. Then what about the people that their only job was to protect us from this and they got it wrong Capital W, wrong. Oh, they knew a little bit before Trump did. They knew a little bit before, uh, you know, a few weeks before he took the, the steps to lock, down, lock things down. We still don't even know how long this has even been in the country, but they want to say there's blood, on, blood on, on his hands. And let me also just note that the explanation that we're going to get uh, from so many people of Trump's, of Trump's uh, culpability here is just going to in the most disgraceful and dishonest way possible, it's just going to ignore that European countries, sophisticated, socialized medicine, European countries are getting crushed by this right now. Their health systems are in worse shape than ours. And to do the numbers to numbers comparison, you know what? The, I mean, the real comparison should be fatality. I mean, if we're, we're going to do an, an honest comparison of, of fatalities, it should be fatalities in the United States versus fatalities in aggregate in the Eurozone. That would give you a real sense you know, that, that, that population-wise is close enough. I think the Eurozone probably has about 500 million people, and uh, America has 330. But to compare 330 million person America, as the media keeps doing, with Italy, Italy has 60 million people. We're five times the size of Italy. So why is it such a big, why is it so noteworthy that we have only, a, a, by the way, slightly more deaths in this country than Italy does? If we're going to start talking about this in terms of the numbers, then we should at least know what numbers we're talking about. I think that that's fair. Uh, but I, I'm also concerned that we're going to keep getting this line about how you can't have the conversation now about reopening. Just just take that shutdown and just accept it. Take that shutdown and don't say a word. Shut your mouth during the shutdown, they say. Here is Governor Cuomo, who... You want to talk about blood on hands? Yeah, he gave some good press conferences. But the, the further I've been uh, digging into what he did in the months leading up to this, very bad. 
No preparation, no foresight. He's if Trump is guilty of any lack of anything here, Cuomo is even more guilty because he's the one presiding over New York. This is his backyard. This is what he's supposed to take care of. We got hit harder than anybody else. So now here is the way that Cuomo talks about this. Play 11. Keep politics out of it. Focus on government and focus on policy and keep politics out of it. It's very hard, especially at this time. And you start to hear this dialogue on reopening and you start to hear people with uh, political theories on whether we should reopen faster, whether we should reopen sooner. Why are people against reopening? Why are people in favor of reopening? That is corrosive and and destructive and if we don't stop it it will feed on itself there are no political conspiracies here but there's no shortage of politics there's no shortage of political implications for this and i don't just mean partisan political implications i mean our relationship to the state both in terms of the 50 states and then also the big s state the sovereign the leviathan the changes in the way that we're supposed to interact with our elected officials and with the the agencies that operate at their at their direction. These are remarkable things. These are not small things. And I will talk to you about how people have started to even on the left recognize that we are living in what is effectively feeling like right now a benevolent authoritarian state. Now, whether you think it's benevolent or not, put that aside. It's trying to be and it is. They are. Let's not. Let's not get crazy. The public health authorities and the people running the states and everybody, you know, by, you know, they're, they're the overwhelming, not just majority, but, you know, almost all of them are doing almost all of what they're doing because they think that it's going to help people. So we're not going to stray into crazy town where this is like they're leading us off into FEMA camps or something. I'm just saying, though, that they're still establishing a precedent and they're still taking upon themselves authority to do things that they don't really constitutionally have a right to do. And even if they're doing it for our benefit this time, there are longer term problems that that raises. There are problems. And also, I think in the next six months, if this were to continue, we'll start to see more and more of that. But we have to have a debate about this. And there will be a political component to it. There's no question about it, especially with an election coming up this fall. So be prepared for a lot of people to tell you to stop being political while they are giving absolutely partisan political lectures in the same sentence, in the same breath. They'll be, they'll be telling you, don't make this political. Do what I say. Trump is terrible. He has blood on his hands. Now shut up and go into lockdown. That's what we're going to be seeing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. What we're seeing is we're united in social distancing, and that's been very encouraging to all of us, and it should be encouraging to the health care providers that are on the front line, many of which are serving our Americans with such dignity and respect and ensuring that everybody gets optimal care. And as the president noted, our mortality in the United States is significantly less than many of the other countries when you correct them for our population. And that is really solely the work of our health our frontline health care providers. And so working with
with, you can really, hopefully you get the theme today that we are, are incredibly proud of our public health leaders at the city level, at the state level, at the federal level who are working together to really change the course of this pandemic, working with their citizens and their communities to make these changes, and the American public who has really taken all of this to heart. Dr. Burks seems to me to... Uh be a, a reasonable voice on on most of these issues on uh, it's, I haven't just heard her be unreasonable so I'd say a reasonable voice period it doesn't mean that she's right on everything but at least she's I, I, I don't see her uh, I, I, I don't see her deciding that um, she's going to do anything that's overtly political that's my sense of it right I, I haven't gotten that from anything she said she does point out here exactly what I was telling you that the mortality rates First of all, the overall number is, is worthless when you're comparing countries that are a fraction of the size of the United States, the United States. And another another long term component of this is going to be. And, and here's here's a, a prediction that I'm confident in. You'll see that while we have been told for the last particularly the last 10 years that uh, we've been told that the European countries have better health care than we do. We, we always hear this. European countries have the better healthcare system and everyone has it and it's free and they fig- figured it all out. Uh, you're going to see when they when they compare apples to apples here of individuals roughly the same age, roughly the same condition going into a hospital. What are the chances if you went into a hospital in Italy or Spain that you survive with covid-19 as somebody remember adjusted for age because we know how important a category that is. If you're 65 and over and you go into a hospital in Spain or Italy, what are the chances of, of survival versus if you're 65 or over going to a hospital in the United States? I, I think that we will see that our system here is notably stronger, better. And this, is, this has been true about cancer for a long time, that our, our can, long-term cancer survival rates are much better than uh, our European counterparts, with the possible exception of like Switzerland, a couple of small ultra-wealthy company, uh, countries. But in general, a large, Euro, large Eurozone countries have a lesser cancer survival rate, particularly beyond five years, which is a, the marker they generally use in cancer, uh, cancer studies. We're, we're stronger than they are on that issue. And I think we're going to see we're much stronger on COVID-19, too. Um, so that look, that's a longer term issue. But I just think that the people that are. Uh, constantly trashing the economy and trashing capitalism and saying that, you know, we should have if we had uh, health care, Medicare for all, everything would be better. No, what they're going to find out is because we have doctors who are well paid and who efficiency is rewarded in our medical system at some level, meaning good care. When I say efficiency uh, is rewarded, it's not just you get paid the same no matter what. It doesn't matter that that will have the effect of actually saving lives here. In the aggregate, when you look at all the cases together, that having a better, uh, a, a better funded and more more market based, not free market at all, but more market based healthcare system than some of our European counterparts. I'm telling you, we're going to you're going to see studies they are going to come out. It's going to take a few years, but just mark my words and they'll show that if you have covid-19, you'd much rather be in an American hospital than anywhere in the eurozone right now. That's for sure. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The president raised a lot of valid concerns. Uh, China was not truthful with the world at the outset of this. Had they been more truthful with the world, which would have enabled them to be more truthful with themselves, they might have actually been able to contain this entirely. Uh, and there is some growing evidence to suggest that. As late as January 20th, they were still saying that there was no human-to-human transmission, and the WHO is validating those claims on January 14th, sort of enabling the obfuscation from China. I think going forward, the WHO needs to commit to an after-action report that specifically examines what China did or didn't tell the world and how that stymied the global response to this. I also think they need to embrace Taiwan's role in the global health community and allow them to attend the World Health Assembly. Right now, they've frozen China out. The WHO has. at sort of the behest of China. And that's hampered the global response because China's been a very important partner. To give you just one more anecdote, China didn't share the viral strains. And right. the WHO should have made them do that. Had they shared those early on, we could have developed a diagnostic test earlier, validated it earlier. Okay, so here you have former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who is also one of the authors of that plan to reopen America that I've talked to you about. He's all he's all over the place right now as somebody who's weighing in on this issue. In that soundbite, it was a little confusing. He's talking about an important issue, but he kept saying China, and sometimes he said China when he meant Taiwan. Taiwan wanted to tell the world more about what it was seeing, wanted to tell more to the World Health Organization. Taiwan was trying to raise the alarm bell early, but you know what? The WHO and other international institutions, they adhere to China's Taiwan as part of China policy. Right. This uh, this irredentism, this obsession with Taiwan as part of the Chinese mainland. Taiwanese don't feel that way. Um, But, you know, China thinks of it as just an extension of its own sovereignty, its own territory. International organizations won't stick up to China on this one. You know, they they won't remember when there used to be things like, you know, Tibetan freedom, the concert. And there there's all this stuff that was really about pushing back on on Chinese aggression and Chinese uh, domination of areas that were not Chinese, that's fading away. That's fading away because the media, because international institutions are scared of the Chinese uh, government's influence and money and what it can do. This has been sneaking up on us. Trump knew this. Trump has been raising the alarm on this. He is right. Our entire China intelligentsia in this country, meaning people that study China and think tanks and uh, have been overwhelmingly wrong. They were telling us for the last 20 years or so, oh, this is great. Look at how cheap your flat screen TV is at Walmart because it's made in China. Oh, this is great. Look at how cheap your iPhone is. This is capitalism. This is how it works. Oh, no, there's a lot more going on than just that. We should have had more uh, sophisticated thinking, but international corporations, major companies, the kind that write checks to think tanks, for example, they were all too happy to play along with the, this is a win-win for us. China sells us cheap, cheap stuff, a lot of it crappy, but China sells us cheap stuff, and we get to outsource all of our production so companies get to make more money. Oh, and now we find out that there are more, there are more considerations than merely paying workers a lot less and driving up your stock price, that there are more things for a company to think about. Patriotism for corporations is, in fact, a, a consideration that we should all insist on. Right. That should be the future in this country. I've talked about made in America, but it should also be caring about America, that patriotism for American companies should be 
a mandate. And the, the stuff that we've seen where, for example, Google will have employees who won't work with uh, American defense companies or won't work with the U.S. government trying to develop new technology to keep our soldiers safer, to make sure that we don't get you know, caught unaware on the battlefield. But the same, the same employees at Silicon Valley and Google, they'll, allow, they'll keep doing business in China if they can, while China is running the biggest surveillance operation the world's ever seen on its own people and everyone else who goes there. Patriotism matters. Patriotism matters. We have to do uh, a rethink here about the approach that our companies take and what they're trying to do going forward. Uh, This is, is, I hope, a wake-up call on that front. And the Chinese government has been a massive problem for us for a long time on a number of fronts, but this... I mean, we're not even talking about how much intellectual property they've stolen from us. You know, why do we have a why do we have a military advantage over China? Yeah, we have the best military in the world. We have the best soldiers in the world. But guess what? Technology also really matters here. Right. Doesn't matter. You can be the best pilot on the planet. If the other guy has better radar than you and missiles fire further and faster than you, you're going to you're going to die. And he's not. The Chinese have been stealing our most sensitive technology, business and military espionage going on for years and years and where was the where were the alarms about this oh you know nobody oh they too much trade with china we can't manage we can't handle the to upset them so this is a reset it, it, look it's the start of a new cold war folks that's where we are this is this is a cold war with china underway now because of this virus and at the end of this either the american republic will be standing or the chinese communist party will be standing It will not be both. This is how these tectonic level shifts in international relations occur. A major unforeseen event that all of a sudden causes a rethink of so many other things. And we're in it right now. You're you're in the beginning phase of it. Oh, what? This is just going to go away. We're going to say that that, that everything is fine. We're going to. Oh, does anyone really feel like forgiving the Chinese Communist Party for this? Or some people call it Chinese, uh, the Communist Party of China, by the way. You'll see it written two ways. But yeah, this is a, a reminder. Now, I was a little bit surprised that Navarro. Oh, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> that's, I was like, wait a second. WHO's Navarro. Not to be. I was like, Peter Navarro didn't say this. WHO's Navarro had this to say. Play clip seven. We really do have to work with the information we get. We don't have in the World Health Organization the power to go and inspect beyond what countries tell us. That's been made clear in the treaty that governments agreed in 2005 on how nations work together and how the WHO operates. But I say this, that they did invite a team pulled together by the World Health Organization to come and inspect everything in mid-February. There were no restrictions on what that team investigated. It included American experts as well as experts from others in the world. So we are trying to be, be clear to everybody that we have been given access to the information we requested. And so therefore, I don't like in any at any time to say we don't believe. We believe what we've got. We work with what we've got. That's how we operate in the World Health Organization. WHO trying to uh, trying to run some damage control here. 
Sure, China was just great about this whole thing. We, we've known we've known for years. Here's the problem. When you look at the timeline for SARS, for H1N1, and, and even this book by uh, Sonia Shaw that I read a couple of years ago, just because I've always found pandemic disease, and I can show you this. I mean, I, I downloaded this book at least, I think, two or three years ago, read it. I've talked about it before on the show. It has some very interesting stuff historically about pandemics, but it, she just uh, walks you through how for pandemic disease, the Chinese, uh, the, the Chinese practice of animal, you know, harvesting animals in huge numbers and the look, the lack of, of hygiene that's involved with a lot of these animals. It's just it's a perfect laboratory for this kind of disease spread. We've known this for for the last at least the last 15, probably 20 years. And this just keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening. H how many people knew that that was going on? How many had really figured out that China was such a danger in this regard to the whole world? You know, I, I do give him some credit. Bill Maher over the weekend uh, on his show, he did a monologue from from his home, I guess, in Malibu or Beverly Hills or whatever it is uh, for his show. And he's horrible. on. I mean, he hates Trump. If you bring up Trump with him, his eyes just become bloodshot and he just he hates Trump as much as any human being you'll ever find. So you can't have a conversation that involves Trump with him at all. I learned that the hard way. OK, but on the issue of China, uh, he is willing to say that this one, we should call it the Chinese uh, Chinese coronavirus or Chinese COVID-19. Uh, we should say that. And that's that's now he's a little late to this party. A lot of conservatives have been saying it for weeks that this is, you know, Lyme disease is named for Lyme, Connecticut, Zika, Ebola, et cetera, et cetera. This has all been well known for a long time. Although, interestingly enough, the Spanish flu probably started in America and made its way to Europe because of troop movements and because Spain, because Spain during the First World War, the end of the First World War, did not have, it was a neutral country, did not have the same press restrictions in place. Their press wrote about this flu. That's how it became known as the Spanish flu, even though it wasn't particularly bad in Spain at that time. And it was certainly not first um, established or developed in Spain. The first time they ever uh, found it was actually on a U.S. military base. A guy had 104 degree fever, and that's when they think they first had it. And then in the second wave, it mutated, and that's when it came back in the fall of 2018. The Spanish flu came back in the fall of 2018 and killed so many uh, killed so many people. It was a they call a W curve. It was dangerous to the young, like like flu always is dangerous to the old. Also, same case, dangerous in the middle. A lot of people 25 to 35 died. Millions in that age range died. Um, and I said 2018. I'm sorry, 1918. Spanish flu of 1918. Pardon me. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry, guys. That was that was Way off, 100 years, 1918, obviously, First World War. Um, but the Spanish flu of 1918 uh, had that W shape in the with with the way that the disease uh, killed so many people. And we're trying to learn lessons now about it. But also, as we talk about the experts, remember this, the experts then thought and, and this was the the height of science at the time they couldn't see viruses okay they, didn't, they weren't able to see viruses until the 1930s no one could see viruses we could see bacteria so they thought it was a kind of bacteria that they kept finding in certain people that had this disease but they were they were wrong and there were for the time millions which would be obviously much more money in today's dollars millions of dollars spent trying to find a a, a treatment 
for a bacteria that was not the problem. And this was the height of global medical expertise at the time. So now I, I know our medical system has gotten a lot more sophisticated since then. Obviously, it's gotten a lot better since then. But understand that there's still, you know, when, when you're talking about listen to the experts, when something terrible like this happens, if you go into hi the history of pandemics, experts have always been not where they needed to be in terms of knowledge and ability to treat uh, in a way that I, I think is worth us remembering. Whether you're talking about cholera epidemics, you're talking about, uh, you know, the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, there's there's been a lack now. Sometimes we get a miracle breakthrough, um, but usually it is the case that we have to suffer terribly and then they manage to figure something out in time. And they usually also started off with quite a bit of wrong knowledge in trying to tell us how to fight against something. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. China has been unbelievably taken advantage of us and other countries. You know, for instance, they're considered a developing nation. I said, well, then make us a developing nation, too. They get big advantages because they're a developing nation. India, a developing nation. The United States is the big developed nation. Well, we have plenty of development to do. He's right that China has been taking advantage of us. And this seems to have been explicit uh, within the Chinese Communist Party ranks. Their, their policy has been, yeah. We'll pretend to be friendly with America. We'll get as much as we can out of them. And by the time they realize what's going on, it'll be too late. It will be too late. Understand that even in the early days of the Soviet Union, there was a period when Stalin, Uncle Joe, as he was called by, by some in the West, Stalin and, uh, you know, Stalin and FDR and then Eisenhower, there was a, a warmth, a friendliness in the very early phase that, that went away quite quickly as we realized what we were dealing with. Um, but we were allies in that fight against the Nazis, and then we had to find out the hard way that, nope, the Soviets were not our friends, not a little bit, not even a little bit. And with China, we're finding out that this is, they, remember, in the 1980s, China was overwhelmingly a country with peasant farmers, you know, subsistence-level farmers, hundreds of millions of people living in, in tremendous poverty, and the policies of the Chinese government, stretching back to particularly through through Mao's era of the 60s and the 70s, China was developmentally 50 years behind uh, where the West was. I mean, that's a guess, but something like that. Right. It was, so when it's 19, when it's, you know, the 1970s in the U.S., China developmentally is somewhere in like the 1920s, 1930s in terms of its economy and and. Over the course of the, in the starting in the 80s and in the 90s, the 2000s, China had this explosion of wealth and productivity. And we kept thinking, oh, this will be great for us because if China becomes wealthier and more prosperous, they'll become more Western and they'll become more friendly to our way of life. And they'll be like a European, a European country. You know, we're, we're never worried about what the UK is. The UK's got nukes. We're never worried about the UK. Right. We don't worry about that. We seem to, and we don't worry about the Japanese, even though we nuked them back in the day in a very different circumstance, right? But Japan is a real ally now. We don't have concern. I mean, maybe some of you have concerns about what's going to happen going forward with Japan and China, for example. But we don't really worry about what Japan's going to do to us or what South Korea is going to do with us. I mean, th these are countries that we have a tremendous amount of faith and trust in. That they're, you know, they're they run on democratic institutions and. We we see the world in enough the same way that we're aligned. 
We wanted we were told by the experts that China was going to fall into that category, that China was going to be like a much more populous version of Japan. Nope, that is not happening. China wants to kick us off the kick us off the boat, kick us off the island and take over. And we're just seeing, I think, now with greater clarity, that reality as the Chinese government has set in motion a series of events that will end up killing certainly hundreds of thousands of people around the world and destroy trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth all so that they would have an iron grip on power in their own country. And that's what this really comes down to. Um, And if you look at the history of communism in China, this is not surprising. And I know it's not truly, it's not a communist economy now. It's really a command control. It's a command control capitalist economy with a communist political party set atop it. So it's a hybrid model. Uh, But we we did not see that. I should say very few people saw this coming. This is one area where, you know, now everyone's jumping all over Trump, saying that he was so slow to prepare for COVID-19. And they're going to say that no matter when he prepared, no matter what he did. Right. We know that. But if you look at what he has been saying about China and how they're stealing from us and it's wrong and it's bad. He was right on this, on the fundamentals of the single greatest geopolitical challenge and national security and economic threat to the United States, Donald Trump, as unorthodox as his style is, uh, you know, he doesn't have a Ph.D. in economics, which very few people with a Ph.D. in economics are worth listening to. But anyway, he knew this on a gut level because he understands he, he, he has an instinctual grasp of opponents and bullies and opposition and enemy he knows who the bad guys are one of the most simple things in foreign relations simple things in foreign policy that our own foreign policy intelligentsia has just no grasp of whatsoever i mean they're they're wrong on that time and time again whether it's the soviets or you know now dealing with uh, the communist party china this is this is a, a very painful lesson we are learning but Cold War 2.0 with China is upon us for sure. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, my friends, we have a special treat for you here. Mr. Jesse Kelly of I'm Right with Jesse Kelly on Pluto TV's The First. Uh, You should check that out on Pluto TV if you haven't already. Channel 248, The First. Also the host of The Jesse Kelly Show, now in national syndication. His home station down there in KPRC Houston is also where I am. So it's Jesse, then Buck. So it's basically the best radio line if you could find anywhere in the country. So good job, KPRC Houston. Mr. Jesse Kelly, how you doing? I'm uh, just, uh, I'm a little different, but you know, I'm always good. Don't say anything wrong. I'm good. But I honestly feel like I'm watching a movie. Everything seems so absurd and unreal. And the whole world seems like it's shifting around at once. I feel like I'm on the outside looking in on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I wake up every morning now. And you, you know when you have had a nightmare, which I don't know if, if this is ever a thing that, you know, like maybe you wake up and you think that you're all of a sudden like tiny Jesse instead of six foot nine. But, you know, and, and then you get to stand up and you're like, no, I'm actually I'm actually the size of Andre the Giant. Everything is fine in the world. I wake up and in some mornings it's like, oh, my God, we're still in this. Like this is actually we're still here, right? Like this is still, and I, I will say I had this a little bit sometimes in, in uh, not in Afghanistan, but in Iraq, I'd wake up. I'm like, I cannot believe I'm still in this place months into it. Uh, but let me ask you this, man. Um, you've been one of the very few out there and, and I, I've, I've gone through phases, but I just, when I get enough, like 
death threats and people telling me that I'm destroying my career by saying that a Great Depression is, is bad for the economy. I kind of say, all right, I'm going to I'm going to just drink some tea and watch some Netflix. Now I've had enough. You're out there making the case about how damaging this thing is. So where, where are you now on that? I mean, we're now we're six weeks or so into this lockdown. We're going to be in this for at least another three weeks. They're telling us, I think, at least until it's going to be mid-May before any states really open up, if that. But where do you think we are in terms of the economic pain? Oh, I think we're just seeing the very beginning of it. And that's what that's why I've been so loud about it. And again, it's never that I have said, well, it's just you know, the virus is nothing. It's no big deal. Of course, it's serious. It's killing people. It's a deadly pandemic. But a Great Depression is so much worse than any virus could ever hope to be. We, we lost seven million people in the last Great Depression. That's when the population of the U.S. was less than half of what it is now. Suicides, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, spousal abuse, child abuse, uh, depressions. These things go through the roof when you have economic downturns like this. And the way people have talked about this, that's why I've been so loud about it, and I don't give a crap that everybody's mad at me. The reason I've been so loud about it is you don't realize you made a mistake until we're there. I've been screaming from the rooftops because I want people to wake up now. And, I'm not and then it's, to be right. And then it's too I'm, late. By the way, that's the problem is that once right. once everyone sees, oh, our, our currency is is in free fall. Uh, we you know, we we've printed too much money. We don't have the, pr- the productivity behind the economy to back up the promises that we're making to ourselves or to the rest of the world. It's too late at that point. Uh, at that point, you can't do anything to put the genie back in the bottle. That's, that's why. That's why I feel like I'm living in that twilight zone that I was talking about, Buck. I mean, I can see this clear as day, and it blows me away that other people can't see this. And I get that viruses scare people in a unique way because you can't see them. You can't dodge them. If it's coming for you, you're going to die. You No one wants to die with their lungs filled up with fluid. I mean, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But you can put a tangible cost on what a depression costs. We're at 20 million unemployed easily already, Buck. So it's... 16, just short of 17 million officially. That means all the 1099 people, all the small businesses, all the people who haven't been able to get through, we're easily over 20 million. Another three weeks, that puts us at 40 because businesses are going to be running out of capital as they go along, and that that increases exponentially. They're just going to keep running out and declaring bankruptcy. 40 million families that can't feed themselves now, that can't pay bills now, the reverberations of that are staggering. And I'm shocked it was ever even considered. It's not just that we're doing it. I'm shocked anyone ever considered it. It is the dumbest thing that's been universally accepted I've ever seen in my entire life. I also don't, and I, and I really mean this, and I, I can sound like it sounds ridiculous until you think about it, but if the standard is shutting down the economy means less spread of a uh, respiratory virus, which means less people will get that virus and therefore some will die, you know, some uh, degree less will die from that. And if it's not that big of a deal, I don't understand why we don't shut the economy down for two months every year so that we avoid flu deaths, which are, as we know, 20, 30, 40,000 years. By the way, even if this was the worst case scenario that we've even seen, that this is going to be 500,000 deaths. Well, if if any death is unacceptable, which is what we're being told from this, and the economy doesn't matter. It seems to me like every year we should shut down for at least 60 to 90 days. Why not? Have the government write everybody checks, give us a vacation. I'm glad you brought that up because that leads me to my next big concern, and this is probably the biggest concern. It's not just what we're going through now. We know we're going to go through this right now, and it's going to be brutal, and I have some grave concerns over how brutal it's going to be. But did we just open up Pandora's box, Buck? 
Tell me, did we just tell all the people in this country and the government that the next time anything breaks out, the solution is lock everyone in their houses? Because if that's the solution from now till the end of time, I guarantee you one thing. On top of what just may happen by chance, the Chinese are watching our response to this too. And if I'm the Chinese government and I have published a paper publicly saying they want to dominate the world by 2050 and replace us as the superpower, and I see that the world's largest economy will line up in small businesses and fire a bullet into the back of their heads the second a virus comes out, uh, I know what I'm doing. My bioweapons labs are going to be working overtime because I'm going to figure out a way to exploit that. We have shown the entire world we will become paralyzed with fear the next time we get sick. And that might be more dangerous than what we're actually going through currently. Right before you came on, I was talking about how this has kicked off and everyone needs to understand it. this is the, the new Cold War. And we were being told that it was going to be between Russia and the U.S. because of crazy libs who can't accept that Hillary lost. That was ridiculous. Russia's economy is about a trillion dollars a year in total. Russia is a, a, a complete paper tiger. There was no way that Russia was really going to oppose us in any meaningful way on the world stage. It has been China to anyone paying attention. And now that conflict is not only unavoidable in terms of people's recognition, but I think unavoidable uh, when you look at the trajectory of U.S. policy and, and U.S. economic uh, struggles uh, around the world. And, and I would I would ask you this, though. There is a, a separation that is very that is very apparent between those who continue to work and get paid, which those in the media, they're going to figure out the very big fish, the people that are, you know, millionaires doing shows from their homes. Yeah, OK, they're going to continue to they'll be fine. First of all, they'll be fine if they stop working tomorrow. Right. I mean, a lot of them just keep doing this out of ego. But even if they uh, even if they were to continue, they uh, the other people in those organizations are going to lose jobs. Advertising is going to be way, way down. The media is going to get hit, but not yet. Right. Most people in the media still have jobs. Politicians still get paychecks. I think it's not the pain of the economic shutdown is not real to the people with the loudest voices and the biggest platforms for the most part. What are small business owners that you talk to telling you about what they are facing right now? Like, give us some it's anecdotes, but anecdotes matter when you're talking about human beings and their lives. Well, Buck, that's who I'm surrounded by. I, I, I don't I don't I don't live in D.C. I don't live in New York City, even though I love both of us. But I just don't. I'm surrounded by business people and to a man. Each and every one of them is scared to death, wants to open back up tomorrow, thinks this entire thing has been overblown, and they're desperate now to pay their bills. Because I have, like I said, I know a bunch of them. One friend of mine, I told this story a little while ago, he owns a large retailer of an item people own, a lot of, and it's expensive. And they have one of the best business models I've ever seen. His dad was a super genius business uh, guy and helped them set everything up. Long story short, this is a small business that was the next big thing. These guys were heading towards being billionaires when some, some guy with a bunch of money comes and buys them out. Their books were solid, cash reserves, proper investments. I mean, solid. They are now under two weeks, and they're about to fire everybody they have and close their company. That is a solid business. And I mean, some of the most solid financial books I've ever seen in my entire life. We're not even talking about the vulnerable, vulnerable businesses or the businesses banking on one big contract that wasn't going to come out. These people are drowning. And not only that, and no one wants to talk about this because it makes it sound like you're, 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 uh, you're, you're callous towards the people who died. But right now, Buck, if we're talking 40 million unemployed, which is not in any way unrealistic, 40 million unemployed by the end of April for 20,000 dead, 30,000 dead. Now, that's a huge number. That's a huge number, but that, that juice is not worth the squeeze. 
And the point is, we live in a social media world now where we people will say stupid things like, if it saves one life, that is the dumbest freaking thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. As a leader, president, governor, mayor, you have to sit down all the time and make decisions like this. You have to decide, okay, was this going to kill 5 million Americans or 30,000 Americans? Because that's two very, very different things. Well, you know, and the truth is, we put all of our eggs into the virus basket, and we're paying for it. That guy, Alex Berenson, the former New York Times reporter who's getting... A lot of a lot of attention for being willing to crunch the numbers and just tell people what the numbers actually say, even when the numbers don't line up with what the specific narrative may be from the consensus, from the, the experts at, an, at any given time. I had an exchange with them. I said, are you seeing anybody who and I, and I know you follow him, too? And like the guy's been on Tucker show a bunch. He's getting a lot of people to pay attention to his work, as well as people that are saying that he's a truther and he's, you know, he wants everyone to die. His wife works in healthcare and is treating COVID patients, but they're saying he wants everyone to die and he's terrible. Uh, but I asked him, I said, have you seen anyone come up with an economic model for this? And he says, no, everyone's just looking at the stock market and assuming that everything's going to snap back into place. And I didn't get a chance to tell him this yet, but I'm going to say this to you. There are no models. I mean, to, your, to the point about your friend's business, yeah, there's seasonality to businesses. You can have new competition. You can have supply chain disruption. You can have... No one ever anticipates, no matter how healthy your business in is, zero, right? Shut down like this. No one ever thinks that that's something that you would factor into your cash flow to your you know, long-term capital needs, short-term capital needs. No one thinks that that's possible. You know, if you have a terrible season, maybe your sales are down 20, 30%. No one thinks they go to zero for a quarter. What, what businesses are built to handle that? Uh, none, to, to, to your point, none. This is going to hit small and big. And again... Keep in mind, they shouldn't ever have to factor that in, Buck, because this never happens. People keep making uh, comparisons between this and the recession we just had not too long ago, 2007 to 2009. This is nothing like that. If only one part, like a financial bubble bursts, that hurts, and people are going to feel that. But when you haven't stopped the economy from moving, people move around. People adjust. They invest in different things. When you've pointed your finger at huge parts of society and said, you will stop working and go home and be poor, you've left them no opportunity. They have no ability to adjust, and so you've, you've effectively killed them. Even if they drop their labor costs to zero, which sadly most of them have had to do, you still have a lot of other costs. You have overhead, you have taxes, you have uh, uh, utilities, you have floor planning. Like if you're a large car or RV dealer, you don't buy those outright most of the time. You borrow those from a big bank. You're paying interest on $4 million worth of inventory that now you're not moving any. You're finished like that. If you drop revenues to zero, no business can survive like that. And this is where we get to the debate over when to reopen. This is going to get very nasty, as you know, Jesse, both from people that in good faith believe that, you know, shutdown is the only way to save lives and that's all that matters. But then there are a lot of people that are honestly viewing this as the best opportunity they have, not just to beat Donald Trump, by the way, that's a big part of it, but also to rub all of his supporters' faces in it. You know, there, there's a there's a lot of people that have been making noise for years about how terrible Trump is. And the terribleness of this situation, while it is global and not limited to the United States, for them is a vindication of what they've been saying all along about Trump, which is sick and messed up. But that's clearly where their head is. Where do you think we should go? Do you do you do you have a, a, a timeline in mind or a plan in mind or you just know that this can't? I mean, I think we agree this can't continue. So what happens then? Yeah, my timeline was yesterday. In fact, my timeline was about three weeks ago. But here's the problem, Buck. Once we've, once again, to use the term Pandora's box, 
once we've told the American people, and we did this, we, we did this, we pointed our finger at America and we said, you can either be safe from the virus and hide at home, or you can be in grave danger and go back to work. You can't put that genie back in the lamp. That doesn't work that way. Now we're going to tell people to open up and go back to work, and people are going to look around, and rightfully so, especially when you're scared or maybe you haven't done all the reading on it, and you look and say, well, I can't go back to work, I'm going to die. How are you supposed to convince them otherwise? You just told them that. As soon as you present to the public that the solution is to go home and hide under your bed, then the public assumes that's the solution. Oh, we didn't even mention the second wave. Everyone's heard about the Spanish flu. I have bad news for everybody. It wasn't the first wave that really killed yeah, that many people. Hardly any died. I swear, it Jesse was, was not. Wave that got him. Jesse was not listening to the show before we brought him on. You're talking about China, second wave of Spanish flu. It was like Jesse. We're uh, we're two men who are simpatico on the analysis here. Everybody should check out Jesse Kelly's show. You can download him on various uh, sp- various platforms for podcasts. Also on Pluto TV. I'm right with Jesse Kelly is the show. He is uh, the man himself, Mr. Jesse Kelly. Thanks for making the time for us. Uh, and let's let's hope that America uh, continues to survive so that we can keep having you on the show. Appreciate it, boss. Thank you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You said that African-Americans and Latinos should avoid alcohol, drugs, and tobacco. You also said do it for your umbrella, do it for Big Mama and Pop Pop. There are some people already on, there are some people online that are already offended by that language and the idea that you're saying behaviors might um, be leading to these high death rates. Could you talk about whether or not people, could you, I guess, have a response for people who might be offended by the language that you used? Well, I, I use that language because that's the language. i had been meeting with the NAACP, uh, with the National Medical Association with others. Uh, I actually talked with uh, with Derek Johnson multiple times this week, the head of the NAACP, and we need targeted outreach to the African American community. And I use the language that is used in my family. I have a Puerto Rican brother-in-law. I call my granddaddy granddaddy. I have relatives who call their their uh, their grandparents Big Mama. So that was not meant to be offensive. That's the language that we use and that I use, and we need to continue to target our outreach to those communities. It is critically important that they understand it's not just about them. And I was very clear about that. It's not just about what you do, but you also are not helpless. We need to do our part at the federal level. We need people to do their parts at the state level, and we need everyone black, brown, white, whatever color you are, to follow the president's guidelines, the coronavirus guidelines. The media is really so helpful. There you have Surgeon General Jerome Adams, who is African-American, asked by a, uh, a female minority reporter if his language is too familiar and offensive to the minority community. Yeah, that's right. The journos are there in the West Wing to make sure that the African-American Surgeon General who's trying to save lives doesn't use language that a Democrat African-American Surgeon General would certainly be allowed to use, but you can't work for Trump. Even if you are black, apparently, the journalists think you cannot work for Trump and use language familiar within the black community, within the Hispanic community. Oh, that's right. Our black Surgeon General is racist, I guess, they want you to think. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wanted to update you on the status of the public, uh, the the public case. It's not a criminal case, but the allegation against Joe Biden for sexual assault by a woman named Tara Reid. The New York Times 
over the weekend did a a story on this. They finally, I think the story came out on Easter Sunday, almost like they were hoping that it wouldn't land with that much effect. People were doing other things. I was I watched uh, church service on Easter Sunday, so the best that I could do. Churches here in New York are all closed. But Biden has been accused of, by a woman who was on his staff for a short while in the 1990s. And he is accused of forcible penetration, which is, depending on the state, I mean, they use different verbiage for it, certainly sexual assault. Some states would qu- classify that as a type of, of rape. Uh, others classify it specifically as sexual assault. But the same idea. It's, a, it's a, a felony criminal offense. And uh, forced, pen- forced penetration is a serious a serious crime. Uh, so remember, the initial allegation against uh, you know, that, that Blasey Ford brought against Kavanaugh was that he, he held her down and then tried to like reach under her bathing suit or something like that, if I, if I recall. But there was no actual there was no actual allegation of penetration. It was effectively a, a claim. She was making the claim, the allegation that he was going to do that, but it never actually happened. OK, with Biden, she's saying that it happened. She's saying that he straight up uh, physically penetrated her in, in a way that is a felony criminal sexual assault, that that is what happened. And the media has been very quiet on this, very quiet on this. And here's one of the problems that they face. Not only one of their favorite uh, ways to try and shout down and shut up Trump supporters is just to say, oh, Trump is a he's a rapist or, you know, he, he grabbed them by the blank and listened to that audio. And he's so terrible with women. And you've heard this so many times from them. And they believe in general that this this is just a, a ticket to the moral high ground for them. All, all they have to do is say any of, the, you know, is point out. Trump said this, did this, and doesn't matter what you're arguing about or talking about, you support Trump, who's a sexual predator. That's what they will say. Now, keep in mind, Bill Clinton was clearly a sexual predator, an actual sexual predator, and a, a man credibly accused of rape, and they had no problem with that. Never mind the stuff in the Oval Office. So we know that they have no principles, right? We know that the left just makes it up as they go along with this. It makes them feel good to make these allegations. Okay, so we've established that. But you add to this a problem here that they're not going to be able to easily walk away from, at least not while people like me still draw breath in this world. And that is the standard that they set up, not just by attacking Trump, but specifically the Kavanaugh standard and the way that Me Too was weaponized for very obvious partisan reasons to try to destroy Brett Kavanaugh, make sure that he could not go and become a Supreme Court justice, largely but not not solely, this was the left's last-ditch defense of Roe v. Wade. That's what was really going on. That was why they were willing to, uh, to do this, to go to these lengths and to, to destroy a man who did nothing wrong. I mean, I don't just think that Brett Kavanaugh could not have been proven guilty. I think that Brett Kavanaugh was innocent, innocent of the allegations, innocent of the charges, wholly and entirely. And... The issue that the left is going to have now is that you have with uh, with Biden, who we know, remember, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Biden is a creepy, gropy, hair sniffing, back patting, head kissing weirdo. That was established about uh, what over a year ago. We've known that for a while. 
media was totally quiet about it during the Obama years. This guy would walk up to an adult. Look, I, I've been in a lot of professional settings in a lot of places. And the idea that I would walk up to a, a, a woman, uh, an, an adult woman that I do not know, you know, that is not my wife or my significant other and put my hands on her shoulders, sniff her hair and kiss the top of her head before going out to give a speech in front of people is completely bonkers level insane. That would never happen. Biden did that and does lots of stuff like that. Biden is a, a gropey, grabby, creepy dude. But for a long time, it seemed that they were trying to set this up like, no, this is just like he's old and it doesn't. But he's not that old. No, no, no. He's still uh, still on top of his game. He's still, you know, he'll challenge you to a push up contest and all this other stuff. I mean, he's not that old, but, but he's old. So he's a little bit of that. A little bit of that was the defense. But in the 90s, he wasn't an old man. He was a guy who was in a powerful position. And this woman has claimed that he sexually assaulted her. And, and here's the issue for the left. They adhered to a standard that they now absolutely or they've abandoned already, which is that all, all that it takes is the allegation. The allegation is enough. All these centers, I don't just mean the media. I mean, I mean Kamala Harris. I mean the women Democrats. I mean Schumer, the women Democrats on the Senate and Schumer and others who were making this case that just because he's accused, Kavanaugh's accused, let's move on to someone else. He can't, he can't represent the interests of all Americans because he can't be trusted by women. He can't be on the Supreme Court. The allegation was enough for punishment, for the ruination of reputation. That was the standard, and it's easy to see. Just do a basic Google search, and you will see. All that it takes is the allegation. All that it takes is the claim. What happens now? They set that standard. They, may, they, they decided that that was what was going to be. And that was what was necessary for you to be a moral and ethical, a decent person during the Kavanaugh fight. The ugliest political fight I've ever seen, although I think that this fight over reopening is going to be really ugly too. But the Kavanaugh fight was, was rough. It was as rough as it gets. One of the few times I've seen a televised proceeding of the United States Congress and actually felt myself um, sickened, sickened. But they got a problem now because they, they, they ran through their whole list of candidates and they're a bunch of uh, a bunch of radicals, no nothings and imbeciles. So they, they went with the default candidate, Joe Biden. And they're on the, now there's a, credi a credible on the record. And she went and she swore at a police statement a credible sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden. The allegation is supposed to be enough, if not for criminal penalty, certainly enough to keep somebody out of power in public life. That is what they, that was the argument they made against Kavanaugh and they're abandoning it now because they have no principles. They have no decency. They have no honor. The left is a dishonorable political ideology. They, they, whatever they have to do, whenever they have to do it. That's I, I would like another explanation for what's going on here. How can they have Joe Biden be there? Remember, on the right, we've always said we need more evidence. You know, one of the reasons that I've been willing to support Trump through a lot of the allegations against him is I, I'm willing to say I don't believe the accusers. I'm willing to say I don't believe the allegations against Kavanaugh, for example. I think that they're either confused or lying. The people, the third woman, definitely lying. The second woman is confused. And the first woman, I think, is just emotionally distraught. 
And I think she's a liar too, but I can't really prove that one. I'm willing to say that. I'm not willing to say, yeah, I think it's true, but I don't care. Which is really what you think Democrats who have said uh, women have a right to be believed. What they're really saying now is, well, yeah, even if Biden did that, doesn't matter. Too much at stake. Too much power. And that then brings you to this sentence. And the New York Times did have to, they had to change this. They initially stealth edited it and then too many people figured it out. And so then they had to do an update later. But here is the New York Times. The New York Times published this sentence, quote, this was about, remember, Tara Reid accuses uh, Biden of sexual assault in 1993, I think it is, and it gives a very clear explanation of what happened. She was on his staff. They were in close quarters. They were alone together sometimes. There's, there is nothing to prove that this did not happen, whereas with Kavanaugh, for example, nobody remembered this party. She couldn't prove she'd ever met him. No one even thought they were together. No one ever thought they were alone she didn't remember how she got home. She didn't remember anything other than, oh, yeah, this guy who is going to be the vote to overturn Roe v. Wade happened to uh, try to sexually assault me like 50 years ago, whatever, 30 some odd years ago. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the story we're given. With this one, staffer, back in the 90s, Biden's a weird hair sniff. Is, is Kavanaugh a weird hair sniffing, gropey, creepy man? No, Kavanaugh is the guy you want coaching your girl's high school basketball team on the weekends as he does. There's, there's no, no woman who's ever worked for Kavanaugh says that he's a creepster. No woman who works for Kavanaugh says that he's a gropey weirdo. What do they say about Biden? Here is the New York Times running defense, running defense of Biden. This is the best they could come up with. They published this sentence in the New York Times. It's remarkable. Quote, we found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs Kisses and touching that women said made them uncomfortable. Oh, oh, other than kisses and touches and hugs that women didn't want, nothing weird going on with this guy. Uh, this guy has a long pattern of doing this. We all know this. The New York Times is like, yeah, but I mean, other than that, other than kissing women who didn't want to be kissed, no big deal. Yeah, the New York Times got Hillaryed got just lambasted over this one. And it's absolutely, absolutely the right thing. But this is how desperate they are. This is how de- they know they can't run the geriatric socialist uh, Bernie. They've already they've already told us. What are they going to tell the American people now? Yeah, we had to have the DNC bail on the socialist. But no, totes. He's a great idea. Let's go for that now. Now that things have changed a little bit. That's not going to fly. They know that's not going to fly. That's right. We found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Biden beyond hugs, kisses, and touching that women said made them uncomfortable. Oh, okay. That sounds just fine, doesn't it? They had to delete that. The way that they, they, they deleted that sentence and came up with something else to make it seem a little bit less like, yeah, I mean, you know, so he's a little bit of a grabber and a smoocher without, without, without consent. I mean, you know, who doesn't? Who doesn't, right? That's, that was the New York Times. When Biden's at issue, that's how they approach it. Keep in mind, I know somebody uh, from the Secret Service side who will tell stories, and this came out in a book, and it's true. Biden used to think that it was appropriate to strip completely naked and go swimming in front of females on his Secret Service detail. Let me tell you something. If my wife or girlfriend were on Biden's Secret Service detail, and this guy, when he's vice president, thinks that it's appropriate to uh, strip down totally naked, nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see that. All right? That 
uh, is really there's really very little difference given that they're assigned to him. Their jobs are to protect him in the home. You know, if you had a, an assistant, if you had a secretary in the home and you were walking around, you came out of the shower, and you're just walking around naked saying, hey, you, you know, time to dictate some stuff to you. Everybody would know that that was that's like the Charlie Rose maneuver, right? Another guy that the libs protected and covered up her for years and years. I had heard through the grapevine that guy was a creepster back when I was an intern at CBS Evening News. It was like 20 years ago. But oh, no, no, no one knew that Charlie Rose was a grabby creepster. Uh, this, this is what I mean, folks. And the left, they pretend to care so much about uh, about, you know, outing predators and protecting women. And that's that's all that's all for show when the politics get involved, because all of a sudden now Joe Biden is getting a pass and then some. And given what they were willing to say about Kavanaugh, I mean, these people cannot any journalist that you see who was who was anti Kavanaugh, he shouldn't be confirmed because of those allegations who thinks that Joe Biden should be president is a is a hack without principles. Is an ironclad rule. This is far, far more compelling of an allegation, far more likely to have occurred than the Blasey Ford. And people could say the three women who came forward. Yeah, the, the second and the third were laughable preposterous no one believes them and there were others who came forward too that that should have been criminally prosecuted for filing a false report women that even the democrats in the senate by though this didn't come out as much during the kavanaugh hearing there were women who were like yeah he raped me on a boat in rhode island turned out he had never even been to rhode island at that point in his life so pretty sure he didn't rape somebody in a state he's never been to but there were people who came forward like that we all know we all know that there were lies being told about kavanaugh so what exactly is the exit plan here for Democrats? Just going to gaslight you. Oh, yeah, we didn't do that whole thing with Kavanaugh. Women have a right to be believed. That wasn't our position. They're just going to lie to you. They're just going to lie to you. It's disgusting, isn't it? This is why people don't trust the press and why they shouldn't trust the press. No ethics, no decency. Just power, a lust for power and approval and access and money. That's what really motivates the left. Certainly not protecting women. That's for sure. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. There's no question there'll be a lot of changes to our lives in the, well, there's changes already, but there'll be changes that last a long time. Changes of perception, changes of habit. We're all going to be adjusting. There's an adaptation that is going on here in real time for America, for the whole world, but let's focus on it here at home. James Altucher. Is a guy I don't know, but I've seen his work before. I know people who know him. They say he's a smart guy. He had a thread that I wanted to share with you, just as, as part of our continuing conversation to give us perspective about what's happening right now in this world of the pandemic and how we're all trying to process it, how we're trying to deal with this, figure out what's really going on. He, he wrote, COVID-19 has shown us what the myths of society are, uh, and now they're quickly unraveling. And then he had a list of myths that COVID is shining its light on. Some of these I thought were very interesting, and I, I, some of them I definitely agree with. Here's one myth. Myth number one, you have to be dishonest to be successful. Success in today's environment doesn't mean money. It means ability to deal with increasing uncertainty. How one measures success after this is over is how one was able to master this uncertainty. That's interesting. Here's one that I definitely do. Sorry, that wasn't the one that I thought I was going to read. Here's one I definitely do agree with. College is the best, this is, quote, uh, this is a myth. College is the best way to get learning and then a job. Well, colleges have sent kids home, 
refuse to return tuitions and rents, and online college courses are worse than the online schools. Goodbye, college. We hardly knew you. Yeah, college has been a scam for years. Scam. Seriously. And no one, no, no one likes to think about this. It's true. You can learn a lot. Go get a job. Figure things out. Maybe grad school for certain very specific pursuits, but four-year college? It's not what we should be doing. Um, myth. Giving up charity, or rather giving to charity, means you are charitable. There are hundreds of ways to help people. Volunteering has gone up. Donating to GoFundMe for people who are struggling. Service to others is the best way to reduce the stress of isolation. Give as an instinct. I think that's true. There's a lot of ways to be charitable. It's not just sending money. Sending money is nice too. Another myth. Needing little sleep is good for productivity. Some productivity gurus have claimed this for years. Clearly, sleep is one of the main boosters of the immune system, which is so desperately needed right now. My friends, I learned this too late in life, but I have learned it. Sleep is critical. You must defend sleep the way that you would protect somebody who is like, if you're walking around with your immune system in a jar, think of sleep as your greatest protection for that jar. Okay? Sleep is essential. You must get enough sleep and good sleep. Do not let anything interfere with your sleep. It's important for you. It's important for your immune system and for your higher functioning in your, in your mind. Another myth, my favorite one here. Experts are right. Scientists initially thought worldwide deaths could be as many as 140 million, million people at Harvard. What? So clearly wrong, and yet you shut down the entire world economy, which has led to tragic situations for tens of millions. A lot of myth busting going on out there, my friends. Send me your thoughts. What are the myths that you see that are evaporating right now? Send us that for roll call. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, roll call, my friends. Thank you, as always, for sending in your thoughts. It's uh, a part of the day where I feel like there's, there's a connectivity with all of you, and there's just a normalcy in my day-to-day when I get to hear from all of you instead of just feeling like I'm constantly doing what I, you know, doing the, the dance of trying to establish some normalcy where there is none in my day-to-day here in New York, which is crazy. So let me get to uh, what you have to say. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. But first, also, Producer Mark, how are you doing, man? How was your weekend? You and the missus on lockdown, everything okay? Yeah, everything's great. I rediscovered Words with Friends. I've never played that. You've never, it's like Scrabble, but on your phone. Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah, it's very addicting because we just keep playing each other and, you know, bragging who can spell as many words. Yeah, so yeah. I had I had the, the mystery girlfriend. Um, I had, her name is Deborah. So now we're going to, her oh, name wow. is Deborah. Well, I know. Uh, I didn't I think know. you were going to do that. Uh, dropping bombs today. If you listen through the show, you find out things. So, so Deborah uh, and I, we, we cooked, and mostly I sous chef. So that means I, I do like the dicing of garlic and onions, and I do those annoying things. And she's the one that's kind of mastering the stove and making sure that everything's... But we made uh, shrimp risotto last night that was absolutely out of this world. She made, I didn't do anything, from scratch, uh, penne with bolognese sauce on Saturday. Wow. And also made gluten-free chocolate chunk cookies yesterday. So uh, the, what I'm saying is I don't know if we ever will be able to go back to the normal Freedom Hut because I'm not sure I'll be able to fit through the door. Yeah, and why is there not a ring on her finger yet? Wow. We're working, you know. It's, is it's, is it's, she uh, also gluten intolerant or is she just No, she just does you? this for me because she's amazing. Wow. Yeah, she loves the gluten. 
She does. I think she. I think she goes heavy on the gluten when I'm not around to kind of get it out of her system sure. a little bit. But you know, when I'm around, she goes gluten free, which I appreciate because the gluten gluten is the enemy. It takes a special special person to do that. Yeah, no, I agree. Right. I, producer, producer Mark, I, I have a feeling you like your gluten and you don't want to give it up anytime soon. I do not. But you know what? If my wife was gluten intolerant, I would do it for her. Do either of you guys have any allergies? Uh, to food, she is allergic to like pine nuts. Oh, that's easy yeah, to exactly. avoid though, right? Like who pine nuts? Come on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Pine nuts is like uh, is like the Saturday Night Live of food. Yeah. You don't we, need it. We basically it. You don't can't care have about pesto. It. That's about it. Yeah, huh. fair enough. All right. Roll call time. Dom. Hey, Buck, longtime Freedom Hut listener here. Just want to thank you for your coverage of things this past week. I couldn't agree more with your sentiments in regards to the current measures in place. I'm very disappointed in how the majority of folks have responded to this crisis, and that includes conservatives I genuinely agree with. Thanks for being genuine, sir. God bless. Look, Dom, you know, I'm just trying to do what is what I think is part of the mission of the show, which is ask questions and, and really demand real answers. And I think a lot of folks have just fallen into the, the false security of consensus thinking on this. They're, this is too complicated an issue with too many moving parts and variables for consensus to be a refuge. You, everyone's got to be thinking for themselves on this one. You know, this is why sometimes I have to ask producer Mark, am I crazy? And he says, well, in general, maybe. But on this particular issue, you might be asking good questions, right? So this is we all need that uh, that sanity check. Um that, that I think we have to do by asking ourselves, what do we really know and what are we being told? And what are we being told to accept that we don't, we don't agree with? There are going to be things in this discussion that fall into that category. But Dom, thank you so much for writing in. I do appreciate it. Casey, I love your show and listen regularly. Well, Casey, we love you regularly, so thank you. I'm a paramedic trying to work through the pandemic in the panhandle of Florida, you're my go-to for rational thinking in this mess. I quit watching regular news ages ago. Thank you for what you do. Shields high. Well, Casey, thank you for what you do. Being a paramedic right now, it's just just tough. I mean, every every time you're showing up, I, I can imagine not only you got a couple of things happening at the same time. One, you have the just the emotional and psychological toll of picking up all these COVID patients who are having trouble breathing and understanding what a tough time they're in for and that for a lot of them, if they're older and if their health is really, really rocky, it's going to be a, a fight for them to stay alive. And you know that when you're picking them up. Um, and then also the risk that you're taking as an individual and the risk of bringing this home and giving it to members of your family. The docs that I talk to here, that's a recurring. It's it's not themselves. They're not worried about. And, you know, at some level, I kind of understand this. I remember thinking a little bit about the look, unlikely scenario that as a, as a CIA analyst, I would have, you know, bit the bullet overseas. It, it does happen to people. There's a reason why there are stars on the wall in the intelligence community and the CIA lobby. Right. People do get killed overseas uh, doing what I was doing. But I just remember thinking that the worst part, of, I just I didn't want my family to go through that. I, I wasn't so much worried for me as I, I was worried at the prospect of what it would of how sad and, and how uh, tough it would be for my family back home. And I can, I can understand for doctors and, and nurses, you know, they're, they're taking their risk because this, is this isn't just their profession. This is their calling to heal the sick, to save lives. But I, I know that there's this other component that comes in of, yeah, but now you come home and you might infect your husband or you might infect your wife. And, you know, there's, I, I understand that that's an added level of, of duress for our frontline providers and, and paramedics to be under. So God bless you, Casey. Shield, your shield is high. Thank you for doing what you're doing. 
down in the in the panhandle and uh, you're you're saving lives every day just remember wake up in the morning and remember you are probably going to save a life today it's an amazing thing it's a it's a very special thing it's a high it's a, a lot of risk involved in what you're doing right now given the spread of covid but also it's a a unique and special calling to be able to do that john listening to your thursday show while working out at home coincidentally haven't used resistance bands for years but can convert can confirm if those bands snap and break and your face is in range, you won't have a good time. Caught one of the nose years ago and there was a lot of blood. Gave me a black eye in the process. Shields high. Yeah, John, I'm not I'm not messing with that. I don't want anything snapping near my eyes. Sorry. No, no dice for me, man. What do you think, producer Mark? Resistance bands? Yay or nay? Well, I have a box of resistance bands downstairs with my doorman. So uh, we'll see how that goes. All right. You let us know. Just be yeah. careful. All right. We got to keep you. Without you, the Freedom Hut, you know, the doors don't open. So we got to keep you. If you if you guys hear a best of, you know what happened. All right. Just make sure, you know, I want to make sure Mrs. Mark has some say here. And like, let's not get too crazy. All right. You're, you're not making a Rocky montage. I'm just okay? trying to stay healthy. All right. Healthy. Fine. But, you know, no, no inverted push ups with the bands, you know, on your feet or anything like that. I, I'll keep the bands away from my face. How about that? There, yeah. Keep the bands away from your face. All right. All right. All right. John. Listening to your Thursday show. Oh, oh, wait, no, he already did that one. Christy, happy Friday, Buck. Let me start by saying, please keep the beard. It looks great. Thank you, Christy. I'll take it. The hair is getting a little crazy, but the beard is kind of growing in thick style. It becomes increasingly clear the left lives in a fantasy land wherein only the government can save us. What troubles me most is the value they place on victimhood. They have no time nor respect for people who value self-reliance and personal responsibility. Two major factors that converted me to conservatism. I currently work in the bureaucracy. I see firsthand how bloated and inefficient and deeply unfair it is. Relying so heavily on the government to solve one's problems is not only a dumb but frankly dangerous idea. How do you lure, how do you lure people away from the appealing notion that nothing is their fault? They can always blame someone else. It is sad and frustrating, but my shield remains high. Uh, hmm. First of all, Christy, thank you so much for your note and a lot of a lot of insight. And I'm just trying to think of the best way to answer this. Uh, one of the reasons that I left the federal government was that I did find that I used to say this and maybe this is a little bit too cynical, although I don't think it really is. Now that I'm, now that I'm given in a moment's thought that uh, excellence was suspect. I've always believed that that's true within the federal government, certainly within the bureaucratic ranks. Leadership can be excellent or at least can pursue the uh the reputation of excellence sometimes at the expense of actual skill and ability uh but if you're a worker bee you are not supposed to be excellent and if you are that puts people on edge that puts them on guard so how do you change that culture i don't think you really can uh, because the bureaucracy is a very large a very large uh organism in a sense for which individual ingenuity and just individualism in general is nothing but risk you are a cog in the machine you are there to do the tasks that you are given and for some people they're they they like that mechanized approach to their day-to-day -day. they like that they have a thing to do they do the thing that's what they do they go home uh, and and that's fine because we do need some we do need some government we do need some bureaucracies these are things that must exist at some level I think our bureaucracies at the federal level have become far too big. I think the culture has become self-indulgent and complacent. I think that the bloat is completely out of control. 
And I think that mediocrity, process is the product, and mediocrity is the expectation. Uh, that's, you know, you know, mediocrity is really, really the goal because they don't want, they want, want there to be excellence. So those are, those are my musings on the bureaucracy. I wish I had an answer for you, a way to fix it. But I don't, some people like to do this thing of, well, here's how we fix it. You know, they always, this is like radio hosts that are like, you know, everybody just call your congressman and tell them to stop spending too much money. I mean, okay, maybe if there's one concerted effort at one point in time on one bill, that'll work. But I mean, general day to day, guess what? Uh, you're going to get stuck at the switchboard and no one cares. So I wish I had, I wish I had answers to everything. And unfortunately, uh, one of the Hopefully one of the selling points you find of the show is that when I tell you I have an answer, it's because I believe I do. And when I don't, I tell you that, too. Matthew, producer Mark and Space Lord Super Ninja Buck. Yeah. Producer Mark gets top billing because he does all the work. <laughs> Matthew. Yep. Uh, yeah. Where, where do you where do we find this one in the inbox, producer Mark? Huh? I wonder why that made it in. Yeah. Uh, I swear I didn't make that up. It's all right. It's all right. Producer Mark is the he's the engine. He's the engine behind the show. You know, he's the he's the drummer and the bass player. And I'm the guy that, you know, we just hope that he stays sober enough to actually do the show as the front man. You know, that's the idea. Regarding your question last week, if the greatest sports movie of all time, what it is, I offer up the legend of Bagger Vance. Well written, well acted and a great storyline. Isn't that a golf movie? Yeah, I looked it up. It's a golf movie. Is he being serious? Could it really? I be a- I hope not. I I, mean, I would never even try to watch it. Like I'm sorry, I appreciate the compliment, but I hate golf so much. Yeah, I know. This is the guy that thinks you do all the work. Meanwhile, he maybe has picked out the most boring, yeah. the most boring sports movie of all time. Does this say something about his judgment, producer Mark? No, his judgment on producers is great. It's just uh, sports movies isn't so great. There you have it, folks. Yeah. Charlene, hey Bucko. It's funny, my, my family actually calls me that. So excited for you doing well. I've listened to you from the start. You are who you are who is in my earbuds every night as I go to sleep. Well, thank you, Charlene. That way I wake up in the middle of the night, I've got someone smart with a nice voice to listen to. Well, Charlene, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for, uh, for tuning in. And uh, yes, that's very kind of you. Um, I'm happy to keep that going. And uh, Producer Mark did ask about the Malta podcast. Research is pretty much done, so now it's just sitting down and recording, which will happen this week. But it, it is happening. Uh, Veronica, hello from the Florida Panhandle. Just want to tell you your show is my new addiction. I love it. Happy Easter. Well, Veronica, thank you so much. It's a healthier addiction than Cadbury eggs. Bruce and Mark, do you? Oh no, you don't. Eat, do you eat Easter candy? I mean, I know you don't. I know you're a Passover I mean, guy, not an Easter guy. But. Just because I celebrate Passover doesn't mean I don't like uh, right. Easter exactly. candy. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, what, what's the top Easter candy for you? Uh, I love the chocolate bunnies. Yeah. Really chocolate thick and or hollow. Oh, thick. Thick. Oh, that's the right answer. Yeah. I mean, they're both hollow, good, but, you know. Yeah, but hollow chocolate bunny is like, you're just getting, it's getting stingy with that chocolate. You know what yeah. I mean? You bite into that bunny head. You don't want it to be full of air. You want to be full of more delicious chocolate. There's nothing more disappointing than biting into a bunny or a Santa or any of those, you know, type of things and it being hollow. Totally agree. Yeah. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Oh, I mentioned Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. I, I can't really quote the Tiger King about Carol Baskin because of family show, and we don't want to just have producer Mark get carpal tunnel syndrome from bleeping and bleeping and bleeping. But uh, Carol Baskin is upset with the show Tiger King on Netflix 
because she says that it did not focus enough on the plight of the animals and probably also because it kind of it kind of implied that maybe she fed her husband to tigers. What do you think, producer Mark? I still haven't watched it, so I can't. Really, what? You know, I hate what? the shows that are all hyped. I just can't like all you see is it all over the Internet and it just makes me not want to watch it. I mean, you got to watch the first two episodes. All right. All right. You don't have to watch I promise the rest. We'll I will it. watch it. It's just it's not at the top of the docket. Okay, but we because I'm gonna because then then we can make we can make Tiger King references to each other here on the show, and then everybody will know that we know what's going on. You can know? we, we just gotta, stick with our normal The Office and Seinfeld references? That's probably true. Probably probably would work. I will say I've been watching the latter seasons of The Office where you don't have Michael Scott. It's just not the Why? same show. It's just not the same. Well, because I'm I've watched The Office so many times, but it's a little bit like watching The Bulls. When they don't have Michael Jordan, yeah, they still had Scottie Pippen, and they're actually a really good team. And Scottie Pippen was an amazing basketball player, but you need Jordan. Yeah, it's not the it's same not show. It's not the same. Yeah, it's just not the same uh, show. What I do yeah. when I rewatch it is I go to the last season where he leaves, and then I watch the very last episode of the series where he comes back. Yeah. By the way, another another public service announcement because I posted a photo. If you haven't already, follow me on Instagram, Buck Sexton, because I post stuff there. But I posted a photo of Tallulah, and I also did it on Facebook. You know, chubby shaming a dog. You know, there are limits, folks, all right? I don't need anyone telling me that Tallulah's obese. That is nonsense. She is beautiful. She is a full-figured gal. And she's an old lady. She's 11, which in dog years means, you know, she's way up there, okay? So we give her a little extra bacon sometimes. She's beautiful. Most of you, I'll say a vast majority of you understand that she's a beautiful, elegant, old lady French bulldog. Uh, but some people were, were calling me out and they were fat shaming my family pooch. And I'm just trying to say, you know, we're not going to put her on a little t- on a little doggy treadmill at age 11. All right. Frenchies live to be 12 to 14 years old. OK, so she's she's in her golden years and she's beautiful just as she is. I mean, would you rather them fat shame the dog or you? Well, I'm not posting photos of me without yeah. a shirt on. So, you know, what I'm saying? that's a little bit harder. You know what I mean? The dog is the dog. They can see the dog's got a look. Dog's got a belly, but we're taking good care of her here. Let her live her life. Live her life. A little bit of bacon. What are we going to do? We're going gonna, gonna to deny her the bacon. It's crazy. All right. Van. Hello, Buck. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm really digging the extended roll calls. I still want the seminal analysis that only you can provide, which does keep us safe and warm at night. However, the extra levity of random thoughts of other listeners gives much needed relief from our new day to day reality. Stay safe. Keep fighting the good fight. Shields high. Van, that's exactly what we're going for here. So if this gives you a little bit of like relaxation time toward the end of the show, that's what we're trying to do. And that's why we're doing the extended roll calls. It's also why producer Mark and I are just chatting about stuff because we're all friends. We're all in this together, folks. You know, we really are. And you're a part of the, the Freedom Hut community that we're building every single day and that we've now been going with for years and years and years. So we're all going to make it through, my friends. We're going to be safe. We're going to be sound. We're going to be warm at night at some point in the future. For right now, though, shields high.